Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Jolton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills. I'm glad we could be together today. We are continuing our series of lessons from Thessalonians, and today's lesson is titled, The Keys to Sanctification. We'll be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. But before we begin the lesson, let's bow our heads for prayer. I want us to pray together the prayer that Paul prayed for the Philippians, Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Now, as we look at today's lesson, we're looking at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, where Paul gives several very short commands. And a lot of times we skip over these commands without really thinking about them. I want to tell you a story about Lauren Kreitzer. His story begins when his grandmother dies, and he goes over to her house to uh, select some of the things that she had uh, in store for him, some books, some other things like this. And his mother and sister had already gone over most of what was in the house. But one of the last things was an old Navajo blanket. And this was a blanket that his grandmother had actually put on the back porch for the cat to have its kittens on. So it wasn't seen as something very valuable. He took it home, he put it in the back of his closet, and it sat there for the next seven years. During this time, Lauren had a lot of problems. He had a car accident. He spent almost a year in the hospital. He had his leg amputated. Eventually, he found himself living off disability with about $200 a month after his rent was paid. And then he saw an episode of Antiques Roadshow. And on this episode, a man had brought in an Indian blanket that turned out to be worth quite a bit of money. When he saw this, he thought about the blanket he had stored in his closet. And so he took the blanket, went to several antique dealers, was turned down several times, but finally someone, a dealer, recognized it for what it was. It was one of the finest and rarest of the Navajo Chief's blankets. Lauren eventually auctioned this blanket off for one and a half million dollars. Now, This tells us we're often very bad at realizing the value of something. We are too impressed by glitz, by flash. We often overlook things of substance because they seem so ordinary. We rush right past these three commands that Paul gives us here. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. We rush past because they seem so ordinary, and yet... They have power. As we look at these, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 reads, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Implementing these commands, 
will unlock a mechanism that God uses to sanctify us, to transform us into the image of Christ. And when we fail to see the value of these commands, we miss out on an extraordinary resource that God has provided for us. Sanctification is one of the most powerful works that God does in our lives. It enables us to live the abundant life that Christ makes possible. But we can often be confused about what exactly sanctification is. In its essence, however, sanctification is to be made like Christ. The Holy Spirit fills us and begins to change us into Christ's image. And because Christ is the image of the invisible God, ultimately, we become holy as God himself is holy. So, we are to be remade into Christ's image. We become like him. And Christ's essential nature is to be completely devoted to the will of the Father, to glorify the Father through total obedience. So we become like Christ. We are sanctified when we devote ourselves to the glory of the Father. These three commands, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, they seem so simple, and yet they are the key. These are the mechanisms that transform us by allowing us to glorify the Father in everything we do. The nature of the Trinity, three persons, one God, three persons glorifying and adoring each other, the Son glorifying the Father, the Father glorifying the Son, the Son glorifying the Spirit, the Spirit glorifying the Father, and so on. Sanctification is so powerful because it brings us into this relationship. It allows us to join into this process of adoring and glorifying God. As we said last week, the early church fathers used the term perichoresis, or a circle dance, to describe this dynamic relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This dance of mutual adoration and glorification. The commands that Paul gives to us, they are our passport. They let us join this dance. And so these three simple commands are so powerful because together they create a synergy. They create a process where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. When these three join, they become much more powerful than each action is on its own. James Martin writes, Each virtue supports the other in a complex spiritual interplay. Prayer awakens gratitude. Gratitude leads to joy. Joy moves us to prayer. Together, these three actions on our part create this self-perpetuating cycle and bring us into ever-increasing glory to the Father. Now, last week, we looked at the first of these commands, rejoice always. When we carry out this command, we bring glory to God by making the deliberate choice to recognize God at work in this world, in this very present. When we complete this command, we are shouting, Our God reigns. We don't rejoice because of circumstances. We know that our circumstances are always changing. We don't rejoice as an emotion or a feeling. But to rejoice 
is to celebrate the reality that we have a great and good God. God our Father, Christ our brother, the Spirit our comforter. Today we're going to look at the second of these commands, to pray without ceasing. To pray continually, to pray always, this brings glory to God by delighting in His presence. God is glorified as we enjoy His presence, as we find Him our greatest joy. When we pray continually, we are cultivating God's presence. We are proving God's infinite worth and value through the fact that we find Him our greatest delight. We get some indication of how this works, how enjoying the presence of someone brings honor to them when we look at the experience of Nehemiah. You remember from the Old Testament, Nehemiah was the cupbearer of the king of Persia. And as a cupbearer, he spent a lot of time in the presence of the king. Now, several years before this, the king of Persia had allowed a group of the Jewish exiles to return to Jerusalem. They were to rebuild the city and especially to rebuild the temple. But Nehemiah learns that things are not going well in Jerusalem. They are having a lot of problems. And this news greatly saddens and upsets Nehemiah. But he still has his job. He still has to go into the king's presence. And this creates a problem. In Nehemiah 2, verses 1 and 2, we read, I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And then Nehemiah writes, I was very much afraid. We have to ask ourselves, why was Nehemiah afraid? Well, he was afraid because it was forbidden to be sad in the presence of the king. The idea is that to be in the king's presence is such an incredible privilege and honor. It makes you forget all of your problems. To be in the royal presence and yet continue to be sad was considered an insult. Barnes writes, A Persian subject was expected to be perfectly content as long as he had the happiness of being with his king. And so Nehemiah had reasons to be concerned. If he came into the king's presence and yet was not happy, it would have been insulting to the king. And if it was disrespectful to a king, think how disrespectful it is to be in the presence of Almighty God and yet not to be happy. What are we saying about the worth of God when we have other places we want to be, other relationships that provide us with more pleasure? John Piper writes a lot about what he calls Christian hedonism. And he begins by talking about the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which explains why man was created. And the Catechism says that our chief end, the reason we were created, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And Piper changes this somewhat by saying, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. He goes on to write, God is most glorified in me 
when I am most satisfied in Him. Think of what Piper is saying. When we are satisfied, content, delighted to be in the presence of God, this brings Him glory because it shows that we truly value God. When we love something, it shows. A husband can say all the right words, but if he makes it clear that there are a thousand places he'd rather be than with his wife, how much can he really love her? One of the charges that God continually made against the Israelites, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. When we enjoy God, we glorify Him by making it clear that is where our heart is. Piper goes on to write, We all make a God of what we take the most pleasure in. So to worship Him is to find Him worthy. It's to recognize His infinite value. Jesus expressed this when He told the parable of the treasure in the field. He writes in Matthew, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So the kingdom of heaven consists in finding God as something of infinite worth, infinite desirability, and then giving everything to possess this God. We find several verses from Psalms that echo this. Psalm 34, 8, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 37, 4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 16, 11, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, to delight in God, to, to enjoy Him, is to bring Him glory. But how do we do this? First, we practice the presence of the Lord. We bring God glory by making everything we do an act of worship and communion. Brother Lawrence was a 17th century monk who wrote what became a devotional classic, Practicing the Presence of God. And in this short book, he describes how he made everything he did during the day, every part of his life, he made it the practice of the presence of God. He describes this as to do our common business wholly for the love of Christ. And then he writes, I begin to live if, as if there were none but Christ and I in the world. Paul expresses this in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. To eat and drink are the most routine things that we do every day, several times a day. And we usually do them without thinking about them. But even in these common activities, we can do them to the glory of God. In the church, we put a lot of emphasis on having devotions making sure that we set aside time to read our Bible, to pray. This is an excellent idea, and, and I cannot stress how, uh, you know, I cannot stress too strongly that we should be doing this. But the danger of this is we have our time of devotions, and then we're done. We go off, we 
fill out the rest of our day, you know, and then we come back to God the next morning when it's time for our devotions again. But is it possible to make Christ a part of our entire day, to involve Him in each part of our daily life? So the goal is to pay attention to what we're doing and to do it for the glory of Christ. We can call this practicing mindfulness. And this term gets a lot of flack because a lot of times it's associated with these New Age ideas and Far Eastern mysticism. And I'm not talking about anything like that. But I'm talking about living and acting with a specific purpose, to be aware of what we're doing and to do it for Christ and with Christ, where we purposefully invite God into everything we do during the day. If we don't make a deliberate effort to do this, we find the routine and activities of the day crowding out our awareness of Christ. Our days can quickly fill up with so many things that we reach the end of the day and realize we haven't really considered God at all. So we need to be deliberate about this. How can we be proactive rather than simply react to the day? One way is to use trigger actions to set up flash prayers. To have a short prayer that we offer whenever this triggering event occurs. We can choose any kind of event that we want, but something that we know is going to happen several times a day. And we can form the habit of whenever this event happens, we stop and say a quick prayer to God. Maybe it's when you're driving and you come to a stoplight. You know this is going to happen at some point. And so you make that part of your routine. Every time I fill up, I pull up to a stoplight. I offer this prayer. I make myself mindful of Christ. Maybe it's while you're watching your, your evening television show and you make the, you, you make the uh, pledge, whenever a commercial comes on, I will bring my mind to Christ. You know, it's one of the reasons that we say grace before meals. Everybody knows they're going to eat during the day and probably a couple of times. And so by saying grace, we use it as a triggering event to pull our minds back to Christ. Now, as we all know, many times saying grace becomes just a routine. We do it without thinking. But if we can build these triggers into our day. The Jewish religion was full of these. It was full of these activities that were intended to bring our attention to God. The Jewish people had prayers offered when they got up in the morning, a prayer before they ate anything a prayer when they went to bed. They had all of these events designed to trigger their consciousness to bring them to the awareness of God. So, what triggering events would work for you? What do you know you're going to do several times a day? Maybe it's making beds. Maybe it's washing dishes. Maybe it's doing whatever around the house. But you know that there are parts of your routine and you can build these into your life as triggering activities to help bring this habit of mindfulness into your life. Now, one of the ways we can do this is by using certain types of thoughts as triggering devices. For example, what happens if 
Every time I form a criticism of someone else, this becomes a trigger to turn my mind to Christ. Or every time I find myself complaining, this becomes a trigger to turn my mind to Christ. Think of how much better off we would be. We can also use our imagination to bring ourselves into the presence of God. In the movie Rear Window, there's a scene where a woman is so lonely that she goes through this elaborate charade of setting a table for two and pouring two glasses of wine and sitting down at the table and carrying on an elaborate conversation with a person who's not there. And we look at that and we think, oh, well, that's crazy. But we can use our imagination to bring Christ into our daily lives. We can have Christ as our imaginary friend, as so many children used to have. But there are ways that we can recognize Christ is here with us. St. Teresa was known for what was called the little way, doing the smallest actions with great love, bringing God into our smallest actions. Think about what this would look like in your life. What are those small actions that you do every day, and how could you do them with mindfulness, with love for Christ? So, We want to practice mindfulness to make ourselves aware of the presence of Christ. And we also can bring glory to God by listening to Him. Prayer should be a two-way conversation. Praying is talking to God, not talking at God. And so, when I pray in this way, I bring glory to God by being in His presence not just praying as a means of talking to God, but praying as a means of communicating with God, listening to God. And this is not easy to do. Most of us are very poor listeners. It's not something that we do naturally or easily. But listening begins with humility. When we listen, we acknowledge that we need help. We are acknowledging that the other person has something of value to say to us, that it is important that I listen to them. And so, when we listen to God, we are acknowledging that God has something of value to offer us. We are finding His presence of worth, of value. So, we listen to God by honestly trying to find out what He has to say. Isaiah 50, verse 4 reads, He awakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. Now, our usual mode of operating is to assume that what we want to do is what God wants us to do. So, we go to God not with the idea of listening to find out what God wants us to do, but instead to tell God what we're going to do and to get Him to bless our plans. But listening means that we wait for what God has intended. Listening involves shifting our perspective. When we listen, we view the situation from another's point of view. We enter actively, we enter imaginatively into another's mind where we can see through their perspective. And so, when we listen to God, 
we begin to see through His eyes. We laugh at little children sometimes. You'll see a young child, and the child will cover his eyes. And because he can't see you, he assumes that you can't see him. When children are this young, their minds have not developed enough for them to understand that different people have different perspectives. To a young child, their perspective is the only one that exists. And so they assume that you see whatever they see. If they close their eyes and they can't see, then you can't see either. So when we listen to God, we are learning to look from God's perspective. We are practicing being in the presence of God because we are seeing the world as He sees it. And one of the important ways that we know God's perspective is to know Scripture. Scripture is the way that God reveals His thinking to us, to show us how He thinks. God's ways are very different from ours. It's impossible for us as humans to know how God thinks in our natural state. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord, neither are my ways your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's ways are often very counterintuitive to ours, but we can learn to listen to God, to listen through Scripture, to bring ourselves into the presence of God. And in that way, we honor Him. We bring glory to Him. Now, when we do this, when we pray in this way, being continually in the presence of God, praying continually. It changes us. The more we glorify God, the deeper in love we fall with God, the greater the change is upon us. We become what we think about. Richard Foster writes, to pray is to change. We get very confused about this. Many times we feel that the purpose of prayer is to get God to do whatever I need Him to do. I pray in order to change my circumstances. But many times, the power of prayer is not in changing our circumstances, but in changing us. Ralph Waldo Emerson writes, A man is what he thinks about all day long. So, as we pray continually, as our minds focus on God, it has an effect on us. And we know now that this is not just a mental idea, that our brain is actually rewired. So repetition, thinking a thought over and over, actually changes the way that the nerves in our brain interact with each other. When you have a thought, specific neurons in your brain will fire. Now, each thought causes a specific neuron to fire together. And the more often these neurons fire, the more likely they are to fire in the future. So we are actually, by praying continually, we are reshaping our brain to make this a bigger and bigger part of our lives. So when we pray continually, we are doing a physical restructuring of the brain and allowing this pattern to develop. And so prayer reshapes us. It reshapes our expectations. It reshapes what we find uh, to provide for our happiness, our contentment, 
our joy. And so, continual prayer enables us to glorify God by changing our hearts. It weans us away from the inferior things of this world, things that detract from God's glory. When we continue in the presence of God, it brings dissatisfaction with anything that is not God. Paul Tripp writes, If every day I am not beckoned, wooed, seduced by the glory of God, I will be wooed and tempted and seduced by something else. So as we, we daily stay in the presence of God through continual prayer, we bring honor to God because we find Him of most worth. We find Him of most value. When we look at the church, we see our own faults and our own failings. And why is this true? Well, a lot of times it's because we've allowed ourselves to be captured by the glory of lesser things. When we pray continually, these lesser things lose their hold on us. It's interesting Top athletes will get into what they call the flow or the zone. This is an energized mental state where a person is totally immersed in an activity. Now, when athletes do this, they are operating at peak performance, the very top of their game. But sometimes athletes will get into a slump. And what causes the slump most of the time is they begin to overthink. They begin to concentrate so hard on what they are doing, on doing everything exactly right, that it creates this self-consciousness, this jerkiness. It keeps them out of the flow. So athletes have to actually train themselves to shut off this part of the brain, to shut off this continual thinking about themselves, and instead to immerse themselves in the activity. And this has a lot of, of relevance to our Christian life. Our mistake is to think that sanctification, the road to becoming Christ-like, is to focus intently upon ourselves, to scrutinize each part of our spiritual lives. Am I doing enough? Am I reading my Bible enough? Am I praying as often as I should? Can I be doing this better? And so we focus our efforts on doing everything exactly right. And when we find this doesn't work, we double down on our spiritual disciplines. And so we begin to think the key to becoming like Christ is to focus on myself and on what I am doing. But the biblical approach to transformation is not to think about ourselves. It's to get our thoughts off of ourselves and to get our minds onto Christ. Glenn Mills writes, Looking to Jesus is the best and surest way to become more like Him. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he celebrates the transforming power of beholding the glory of Christ. Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So, as Christians, when we practice the presence of God, when we pray continually, 
when we get our minds off of ourselves and onto Christ, then we get into the zone. We get into the flow where Christ envelops us, where Christ possesses us. And so the irony is when our attention is centered totally upon God, that's actually the point at which we change ourselves. Our greatest good, our greatest enjoyment comes not when we seek it out for ourselves, but instead when we seek out God. The power of these three commands, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. The power lies in the fact that these take our attention off of ourselves and they put the spotlight onto God. By glorifying God, they allow us to participate in this dance of the Trinity. And I hope you find this true in your life this week. Let's end with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day, for this word that you've given us, that we can glorify you by praying continually. And we ask that you would help us to make this a part of our daily routine, to behold your glory, and to enjoy your presence. In your name, amen.